Our uh, short little series in Habakkuk has sadly come to an end. Uh, I do hope that it's uh, been of great help to you as uh, it has been for me. The prophet who desires revival instead hears of the forthcoming capture and struggle of the people of God. And so how will the prophet respond? What perspectives shape his response? It's us when things are not going the way that we hoped or planned. Whether this is on a, uh, on a large scale, on a national scale, or on a personal level, what is God doing in the midst of trial and circumstances? Are his operations and his intentions known to us? Do we trust him? It's like the girl who brought her fiancé home to meet her parents. And the girl's father invited the the boy into uh, his study. And he says, "Uh, what are your plans? And uh, the boy says, well, I'm a seminary student. Um... And the father responded, oh, seminary, okay, that's admirable. Um, What will you do to provide a nice house for my daughter? Uh, Well, I will study and God will provide for us, was his reply. And how will you buy an engagement ring for my daughter? Well, I will concentrate on my studies and God will provide. Okay, what about children? How are you going to uh, support your children? Don't worry, sir. God will provide. Well, later the mother pulled the father aside and she said, how did it go? He said, well, the bad news is he has no job and he has no prospects, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. (laughs) Well, in chapter three, we get this prayer from Habakkuk, one of the moving, memorable prayers uh, from Scripture. It's up there with Mary's Magnificat or the, the dedication of the temple. People remember Habakkuk's prayer. And in verse 2, we see that there's a shift in uh, Habakkuk's perspective. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now compare these words uh, from Habakkuk to what he said and prayed back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or, or cry to you violence and you do not save? Or in verse, chapter 1, verse 13. You who have, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The prayers in chapter 1 are, are really complaints. And in this final prayer, he's, Habakkuk has assumed a different attitude. He has a different perspective. Now, the, those first prayers, as we've said in the, in the first few weeks, they're not necessarily entirely bad. He, he is genuine. Habakkuk is genuine in his frustration, and, and he wants to know why evil is allowed to go on. 
Habakkuk has not really done anything wrong here. He, he still chooses to go to God knowing that God has the answers to his questions. But there's something that happens in between these two prayers. And so we're asking, what has happened? What has created this shift? And what's happened is that Habakkuk has taken his eyes and his mind off of himself and off of the Israelites and off of the Babylonians. And he's focusing his mind and his eyes and his attention on God himself. As long as he was operating on the human level, the difference between the relative goodness of Israel and the relative badness of Babylon seemed great. He could ask, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? But when Habakkuk takes his eyes off those things and looks to God... Once he saw the righteousness of God and reminded himself of the eternal and sovereign God he worshipped, those differences fade into insignificance. And the relative goodness of Israel seems unimportant. Habakkuk saw that all, all, including himself, fall short of the glory of of God and requires God's mercy to be saved. Here's how Martin Lloyd Jones puts it. How was Habakkuk brought to such a position? It would seem that it was when he stopped thinking of his own nation or of the Chaldeans and contemplated only the holiness and justice of God against the dark background of sin in the world. Our problems can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. So long as Habakkuk was looking at Israel and the Chaldeans, he was troubled. It was no longer possible to be exalted either as an individual or as a nation. When things are seen from a spiritual viewpoint, there can only be an acknowledgement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The holiness of God and the sin of man are the only things that matter. A friend of mine shared... Um, A story with me, someone who was struggling with homosexuality, actually they had met, funny enough, through Living Waters, and um, this person that was struggling with with sexuality, homosexuality, the the, the more that they uh, tried desperately to deal with their their sin on, on an individual basis as if this was the the one thing in their life that was keeping them from growing in relationship with Christ, the more frustrated they became. The harder their struggle was. Finally, this person was ready to walk away from everything, walk away from Christ, walk away from the church, walk away from grace. And my friend ran into this person a few years later And that person was doing really well. And so she asked, what had changed? How was it that you were on the precipice of jumping off the cliff and now everything's going well? And they responded, they said, the more that they focused on themselves and the more that they hyper-focused on just one sin aspect in their lives, the harder the fight became. But when they set their focus on Christ... 
when they dove into scripture and grew in their knowledge and understanding of him, when they focused on his character and his nature and his glory and his grace, that's when they began to experience freedom from the bondage of their sin. How easy it could have been to have just ignored the sin or, 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 or to try and justify it or to do the comparison game. Well, I may struggle, uh, but I don't struggle as bad as Robert or Emily. Sorry if your name is Robert or Emily. Those are the ones I pulled out of the hat. Uh, you know, I, I may struggle with whatever it is that I face, but it doesn't seem as grave as uh, those people over there. The thing that they struggle with seems so much worse and debilitating. But that gets us nowhere. And all we end up doing is staring at our own feet. And so we see that Habakkuk has had a change in perspective. Then Habakkuk makes two petitions. That God would renew or revive his works in Habakkuk's day. And that God would remember mercy in the midst of this anticipated outpouring of wrath uh, on the people. Now the it in verse 2 that Habakkuk petitions for is the work of the Lord from the previous line, if that was of any confusion to you. Uh, And then when he says, in the midst of the years, he's talking about the time between the two judgments that he has revealed uh, to Habakkuk, the judgment on the people of God by the Babylonians and the judgment on the Babylonians that must avenge God's elect. So what is he asking? What is he asking? He's asking God to renew or revive God's work. Now, usually when we pray for God to renew or revive, we are asking him to renew or revive our work. God, renew our work, the things that we think we have built whether it be uh, ministries or, or businesses or finances or whatever it may be. It's, it's almost like building a house out of dominoes. As long as the structure is going up without any problems, we're not really thinking too much about how God relates to this thing. We don't necessarily need him at this point in time. But the second that the you know, the table gets bumped almost like, you know, your dominoes or your Jenga blocks, you know, the second the table gets bumped and the dominoes start to tumble, we're sort of quick to jump to prayer. And we say, oh, Lord, renew the work, renew the work. The structure is tumbling. Come renew it. And our interest is really in what we are building and not on what God may desire. We need to learn That God may not be interested in our Jenga blocks, in our dominoes. We need to come to the point where we say, no, Lord, renew your deeds. You revive your work. He's praying for revival, but it's not a revival for things to just go back to the way that they were. But it's a call to something new. Formerly, people were dead. Now they are being made alive through God's Spirit. 
Earlier, Habakkuk might have prayed for God to change his mind regarding the Babylonian invasion. As long as Habakkuk was thinking of his own work, he would have been concerned for that. And so so he's going to ask for God to relent, to pass over, because he's thinking about his own work. But now he has his mind off of his work, whatever it is he's accomplished, whatever it is he's done or his people have done. And the desire, and he he instead desires the establishment of God's work. He knows that God is sending the Babylonian invasion. He's assured of that. But he also knows that God will build a new work out of the disaster of that invasion. At this point, he's ready to write off that relative goodness of Israel and anticipate nothing less than a whole new beginning. He's asking for renewal in the midst of bad times. Second petition. Then he petitions for mercy amidst the wrath of God. How do we interpret this? Is is Habakkuk just asking for a get-out-of-jail-free card with this? I think what the prophet is petitioning for is that God in his righteousness, as we discussed earlier, is justified in pouring out his wrath on everyone. But Habakkuk also knows God is merciful in his nature. That's who he is. He's a merciful God. So in the pouring out of wrath upon your people, remember mercy. Renew us, revive us, be merciful to us. Because even in renewing and reviving, bringing life from death, that is mercy. That is merciful. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up in the temple to pray. The Pharisee is very proud of his spiritual achievements, and so he prays like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector back here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. You'll pat on the back, Pharisee. Now, the tax collector, who is fully aware of his very own failures, he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven But instead he prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. This is what chapter chapter 2 and 3 of Habakkuk is about. The Pharisee, he is the man who is puffed up, whose desires are not upright from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The tax collector, he is the righteous man who lives by faith. And so he prays, in wrath, which I know I deserve, remember mercy. And it is the man who Jesus says goes home justified is that man. May we have hearts that understand wrath rightfully and mercy. Who petition for a a renewal and, and a revival within ourselves, within our own hearts, within our churches, within our neighborhoods, within our communities, even or especially in the midst of trials. Then in verse 3, we see a remembering of God's mighty acts. And here we run into the issue of fear. 
God has revealed to Habakkuk what will happen. Uh, he has told him to live by faith in the coming times of trouble, and Habakkuk will do that, but he is still afraid uh, as he considers the judgments that are coming, as I think any of us would, right? He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Now, fear is not uncommon to man, right? David, the uh, man of great faith and strength, talks about his fear as he faces his enemies. Paul had tremendous courage Uh, Think of all the hardships that Paul went through, the the beatings, the stonings, the imprisonment. But he confesses that at times he despaired of life itself. Strong faith is not fully incompatible with fleshly weakness, even that weakness that brings on anxiety. But how do we deal with it is the more important question. How do we make sure that this fear and anxiety do not consume us? Well, here's what the world says about how to deal with fear and anxiety. Three main reactions uh, to these things when they come. First, resignation. A person will say, if it's going to happen to me, uh, I suppose there's nothing I can do Everybody suffers, everybody dies, I might as well accept it. That is fatalism. That's not Christianity. Second is detachment. A person will say, uh, you know, I don't want to think about these things. Uh, One considers, for example, the presidential debates recently. You know, and I think I've been there most assuredly. You know, it's easier to just check out Uh, stock market depresses me, local news depresses me, national news depresses me, international news depresses me, and the best solution is just not to think about it at all. But the problem is that we often fill up our lives with entertainment and amusement in their place. Now, this view refuses to face reality, and reality, whether we like it or not, is real. It is reality, The third is bravado. Uh, A person will say, pull yourself together and face this trial with your chin up. Don't let the future depress you. Now, that would be fine if we could actually do it. But when you face news like Habakkuk is facing, you genuinely are afraid. No amount of saying otherwise is going to actually change your situation. And so, again, the question is, what do we do? We can do what Habakkuk did, which was to put our confidence in God. Rejoice in the God of salvation. If you try to overcome fear with courage, you're trying to rely on your own inadequate resources But when you rejoice in God, we're placing our confidence in in one who acts powerfully and effectively on our behalf. Now, how specifically does Habakkuk do this? Well, he remembers God's specific mighty acts, starting in verse 3. Now, these verses can be hard to understand as they're written in poetic form. 
But they're dealing with God's defense of the Jewish people when he leads them out of Egypt uh, into the wilderness uh, and and eventually into the promised land. Verse 3 is a reference to God coming out of Sinai where he met with Moses in order to deliver the people from Egypt. Verse 4, a reference to the glory of God that manifested as a cloud to cover his people from the Egyptians and later uses that cloud to lead them uh, out of Egypt. Verse 5, referring to the plagues of Egypt and the the conquest of Canaan. Verse 8, the parting of the Red Sea and later the Jordan. Verse 11 is a historical reference to Joshua chapter 10 and the destruction of the Amorites when the sun stood still so that the Israelites could pursue and destroy the enemy. All of these are real, historic, miraculous events. And they illustrate how God acts on his people's behalf. The the Old and the New Testament, it's not a a religion of of ideas only, though of course it contains great ideas. But it is essentially a religion of acts, of God's mighty acts. One commentary put it like this. These alone being what Habakkuk is referring to, these acts, these alone provide the kind of deliverance from fear and provision of inner moral fortitude that we need in hard times. This is why I will never understand people and leaders and teachers who say that Christianity is a collection of metaphors. Well, Adam and Eve is a metaphor, and Noah is a metaphor. Even the death of Christ is a metaphor for sacrifice uh, and for service. Well, if that is true, then you have no view of atonement. You have no view of justice. You have no view of love. You have no view of righteousness. Nothing really means anything. They're just a way to make you feel better about yourself so that you feel less guilty when you die, I suppose. And there's too much that's left unexplained. But these are real events that took place and are showing us the true meaning and purpose to life. And we can rejoice that there's a God who does mighty acts in history and today. In fact, we can even rejoice when faced with the worst Of news, the worst of times as Habakkuk did, because we know that he is working all things for his glory and our ultimate good. Now, there's another aspect of God that Habakkuk goes into uh, in these verses, and that is God's faithfulness. Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed Now, this is similar to the the previous verses of God's mighty acts, but it adds this additional element. The phrase, your anointed one, it's referring to one or more of the kings of Israel. In fact, the second half of the verse and the next verse may probably refer to David's victory over Goliath. But whatever the specific reference, the central point is clear. It is that God's faithfulness to his people. He is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his anointed. God's mighty past acts in history demonstrate that he is able to save those who look to him in faith. The righteous will live by faith. But he 
has also promised to save his people and therefore he will save them. The God who makes promises stands by his promises. The God who makes oaths keeps them. So what promises does Jesus make that we can cling to? John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me in my father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Later in John 14, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He has promised eternal life to those who are in Christ Jesus. He has promised his Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor. He has promised never to leave us. He is faithful to his promises. These promises are enough for us to say hallelujah, amen, and walk out of here and feel like we're on the heavens. To have those assurances, to know those things. Now this last section of Habakkuk chapter three is, 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 the, is the, probably the best known, right? We're calling it a, a response to circumstances, which is a very, I realized, anemic uh, sub te- subheading for our points here. But this chapter three, at the end of, towards the end of chapter three, I mean, it's some of the most moving verses in scripture. What is it that makes these verses so powerful, so forceful? It is the courageous way in which Habakkuk embraces the calamities, all the calamities he can imagine, and yet triumphs over them in the knowledge and the love of his Savior. Finally, a resolution of the conflict that started the book appears. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk now understands through divine revelation the justice of the ways of God with men and the inevitable judgment that must come even upon the faithful remnant of Judah. Even Habakkuk himself is going to suffer and it's not just that the luxuries of life are going to be taken away, it's that some of the necessities of life will be taken How bad would things have to get here in the U.S.? How far would things have to tumble for God's people to awaken from the stupor that we have been lulled into? 
lulled to sleep with entertainment, lulled to sleep with the pursuit of accumulation. I just wonder how much would have to be stripped back to get our attention. What are the things that we hold to so desperately? Sometimes it's even the ideal of what we think is the good life. Certainly our country was founded on biblical worldview foundations uh, like freedom and prosperity. But God, but, but, but could God take those things away from us to save our souls? Could he take away the things we cherish to refocus our attention? Do we desire renewal and revival because we think that means more prosperity? In other words, is it a means to an end? Or do we desire revival and renewal so that hearts are genuinely transformed? Even if that means suffering or losing our freedoms. Because here's the thing. All of that can be stripped away and God remains sovereign. All of that can be stripped away and God has not forgotten his people. The question for us is will we choose to yet rejoice with Habakkuk? Or was our view of God built on something else, something less? Our theme for this series has been a matured faith trusts humbly but persistently in God's design for establishing righteousness in the earth. A matured faith trusts humbly but persistently in God's design for establishing righteousness in the earth. May God grant us hearts that seek him for answers. But if they do not come, or if they are not what we desire, that we would have hearts that accept and yet rejoice in him for who he is. Let's pray that we would have those. Father, if we just consider your promises as we said earlier, we could, we could walk out of here feeling untouchable and yet this earth clings to us like death and it pulls us down and it drives our mind into terrible things and, 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 and depression and thinking that this is all there is. And the question is, what will our response be to what this world is trying to have us think, what the enemy is trying to make us consider. And it's that in the face of the death and the destruction and all the things that could be stripped away from us, we still cling to you. We still cling to you because you are the author and the sustainer of life. You're the only one who is worthy of praise. You're the only one who is worthy of our worship. And so, Father, give us hearts, give us minds that in the face of whatever may be taken from us, as difficult as they may be, 
as heavy as they may be, that we would say with Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in him, the God of my salvation. May we cling to the promises. May we have assurance of the truth. May we be reminded of these things this week, this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.